we have a crisis in the world, tremendous crisis, and also crisis in our consciousness, in us. I see the urgency of change, radical revolution, mutation in the mind. I see it. It is necessary. There is complete quietness of the mind, and that which is silent has vast space. Only then that which is nameless comes into being. This is Urgency of Change, the Krishnamurti podcast. One has to have a very good, healthy body and a brain that is capable of thinking rationally, healthily, objectively, efficiently. A brain that is absolutely quiet. Hello and welcome to episode 120 of Urgency of Change. Season 3 of the Krishnamurti podcast continues with the format of carefully chosen extracts from the philosopher's talks. Each weekly episode focuses on a theme explored by Krishnamurti and the aim is to represent his different approaches to these universal topics. This week's theme is health. Upcoming themes are Krishnamurti, the psyche and measurement. This is a podcast from Krishnamurti Foundation Trust based at Brockwood Park in the UK which is also home to the Krishnamurti Retreat Centre. Situated in the beautiful countryside of the South Downs National Park, the Krishnamurti Centre offers quiet retreats for those wishing to inquire into themselves, in light of Krishnamurti's teachings. Please visit krishnamurtycentre.org.uk for more information. You can also find our daily quotes and videos on Instagram and Facebook at Krishnamurti Foundation Trust. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, which helps its visibility. This week's theme on health has seven sections. The first extract is from Krishnamurti's seventh talk in Sanan, 1970, titled Yoga and Health. A machine, a big dynamo that's working perfectly, ticking over, well-oiled, doesn't hardly make any sound. It's only when there is friction, there is noise. So the brain, and therefore the body, must be completely quiet. So one has to find out whether your body can completely sit still or lie still without any movement. Again, not force it. Because the body, the brain are interrelated. Psychosomatically, they function not separately. Shall we go on? We are meeting each other. We are communicating with each other. There are various practices to make the body still. Again, these practices imply suppression. The body wants to get up and go away, so walk, and say, no, I must sit quiet. And the battle begins, wanting to go out and wanting to sit still. And in this, there's this whole thing called yoga. You ever heard about it? 
Oh Lord. Your rather. I suppose, you know, the whole world is upside down. Mm. When one who is concerned only with social activities, social reform, revolution, all the other things escape or put aside. But if you want to understand the whole business of life, you have to you know, understand everything that is contained in it, human life, psychologically. The word yoga, you'll find dozens of books all over the world, written by all the specialists, means to join together. The very word join together is wrong, which implies duality. You understand? Therefore it has quite a different meaning, which we won't go into now. Probably it was intent, invented, this particular series of exercise, exercises and breathing, many thousands of years ago in India. It is to keep the glands and the nerves and the whole system functioning very healthily without medicine and keep it highly sensitive. And the body needs to be sensitive, otherwise you can't have a very clear brain. If you, you know, stuff yourself with wine, meat and all the rest of how can your brain function clearly? Your smoking drugs and all the rest of it becomes such superficial, uh, immediate satisfactions without any understanding what is beyond it. Now, yoga is a certain kind of practice of exercises, exercises, not something mysterious through exercises. One has to do it to keep the body supple. You understand? The brain have to have all the blood it needs and therefore right breathing. You understand all these things? If I may be a little personal, we do it every day to us. Regularly. Not the regularity of machinery, it, it keeps… Well, I won't go into all that, doesn't matter. So, one has to have very good, healthy, sane body. And therefore, a brain that is capable of thinking rationally, healthily, objectively, non-impersonally, therefore efficiently, and a brain that is absolutely quiet, not mechanically made quiet. Now you can see the truth of this, can't you? Huh? The, tr the simple fact of it, that one needs to have a very good, healthy, sensitive, alert body, a brain that functions very clearly, non-emotionally, non-personally, and such a brain to be absolutely quiet. You can see the fact of that, the simple logical fact of it. Now, how is this to be brought about? Do you understand what I mean? 
how can the brain, which is so tremendously active, not only during the daytime but when you have gone to sleep, how can this brain be so completely relaxed or completely quiet? You understand my question? No method will do it, obviously. Please follow all this. No method, right? Do you see that? Huh? Because method implies mechanical repetition, which stupefies the brain and therefore makes the brain dull, and you, in that dullness you think you have marvellous experiences. So how is this brain, which is so tremendously active, which is never still, because it's always chattering to itself or with others, judging, evaluating, liking, disliking, you know, turning over all the time. How can that brain be completely still? You understand the importance of a brain being still. The importance, not what the speaker says is important. For yourself, do you see the really importance, the, impo- the extraordinary importance impo- that this brain should be completely quiet? Because the moment it acts, it can only act in response of the past. It can only act in terms of thought, and therefore again the operation of the past. And it's only such a brain that completely can still can observe. The second extract is from the second discussion in Saanen, 1975, titled Health Implies Wholeness. What does it mean to see the whole? I don't know. (laughs) I've gone into a great deal, but I'm just saying I don't know. So I'm willing to learn. Learn. I can only learn if I have leisure. Right? I can't learn if I'm constantly moving, constantly offering opinions, judgments, evaluations. So I'm, I'm going to learn. I'm going to learn what it means to apprehend Apprehend means take hold, what is meant by the whole. So I have to understand the word first. The word means sanity, health, rational, clear thinking. And also that word means holy, H-O-L-Y, holy, rational, sane, objective, in which there is no emotional, sentimental, romantic, imaginative quality at all. So I have understood that word, meaning of that word. Now, is the mind capable of seeing the whole. The whole being health, good body, you follow, healthy body, or unhealthy body which doesn't distort perception. 
I may have uh, cancer or uh, disease, diabetic or whatever it is, but that bodily, physical condition doesn't affect the clarity of perception, doesn't distort. That's why we said health, right? And also it means sanity, that means sane thinking. Please watch it. Can there be a sane thinking if you believe in this and that and the other? If you are a nationalist, or if you have faith in something, it's a book of predefinitions, as well. So, sanity implies a non-belief, non-attachment, observing clearly what is, without any distortion. And therefore, such a mind is a holy mind. So we have understood the meaning of that word. I'm asking, can thought see the whole? And we said no, and we've gone into it pretty thoroughly. So I'm asking myself, can there be a perception of the whole? So I have to understand, I'm going to learn what it means to perceive, right? Am I talking too much or to myself? I want to learn, not to be told, not to accept, I want to learn, because the moment you learn it's it's finished. So I must find out what it means to learn. You understand how I am going? I can only learn if I don't know. If I know, then I am this. <laughs> so I really don't know what it means to look at something wholly. So, I'm going to learn. I can only learn when there is curiosity, right? I can only there can only be curiosity when I don't know, and I want and I want to find out. And learning implies leisure. I must have space, I mustn't be crowded, I mustn't have all kinds of problems shouting at me, so I must have leisure. Hmm? And I, ha- I must have it to learn, and I create it to learn. I wonder if you follow this. I create leisure in order to learn. If I say I have no leisure because I am occupied with my family, with my job, with my... You follow? Don't learn. (laughs) But if you want to learn, you have to create leisure. That means also curiosity. You can only be curious when you don't know. I don't know Russian, and I am curious to learn. So I learn. So I'm learning what it means to observe totally. Curiosity and a driving in interest. If I want to learn something, it doesn't matter, a technology. To be a doctor, to be a good carpenter, I must have driving interest in it a sustained, driving interest. You follow? All this is implied in learning. I don't know if you are capable of it, if you want it, if you really pursue it. Then in learning 
implies never accumulating what you have learnt as knowledge. I wonder if you see that. We learn a language. What am I doing all this with all of you? <laughs> Why are you all listening to me? Are you learning something from me? I doubt it. Learning implies a driving interest, curiosity, and sustained energy. All that is implied in that word, leisure. Now I am saying, is there a perception which sees the whole? The third extract is from the fourth question and answer meeting in Sanin, 1980, titled How Do You Meet Pain? I have a cancer and find myself in the following dilemma. Should I try to get to let medicine save my life, even if it may mutilate me, or should I live with those illnesses and pain and meet the consequences which could be death candidly without an operation. You want me to decide this? Huh? This is a very serious question. We all have illnesses, pain, physical pain, perhaps some not unbearable pain. And when they have cancer, which is extraordinarily, I believe, very, very painful. Now, first let's inquire into how to meet pain. Right? Are you interested in this? How to meet pain? How do you meet pain? Look at it. You have had pain. Toothache, tummy ache, various kinds of headaches, pain. Now, how do you meet it? Rush immediately to the pill? The medicine? A aspirin? So, how do you meet it? All right, let's put, make it much more simple. How do you meet a noise? A train goes by, four trains, during the hour that we sit here. How do you meet that noise? Do you... We are talking thinking over together, and this train rushes by, how do you receive it? Do you resist it? Or let this sound go through you and you're, it's gone? You follow what I'm saying? Which, which, do you, which is it that you do? I'm not instructing you, please. I'm not your guru, you're not my followers, I'm not your authority. Thank God. How do you meet this tremendous noise 
that's so disturbing. Do you let it come without any resistance and go on? You understand? Do you do that? Now, if you have pain, and speaker has had part of it, like every human being, do you allow it to end, or you want to end it with some medicine? You are following my question? Do you say you sit in a dentist's chair, the speaker has done quite a bit of it, you sit in a dentist's chair, he drills. Do you associate the pain and identify yourself with the pain? Of course, if the pain is too intense, he gives you some kind of novocaine or whatever he gives you. But if it is not too unbearable, do you observe the pain without identifying yourself and say, My God, you follow what I am saying? Which do you do? Is it immediate identification with the pain or disassociation and observing? When you have pain, you instinctively hold. If you are sitting on the chair, hmm? but if you don't, I identify with the pain, you can put your hands out quietly and bear it without too much, which means, is it possible to disassociate oneself from the actual movement of pain? Enquire into it. Don't say, it is, it's not. You find out for yourself how much, how far, how deeply one can not identify, I am in great pain. You followed it? Now the question I ask is cancer. I'm sorry. And should he take medicine or operation or bear with it? I know people who have cancer. The country, we've seen them. And they don't want to go under the, on the table to be operated. And they bear with that enormous pain whether that pain affects the brain, which has its own capacity to protect itself. I don't know if you have gone into this, I am just pointing out. You understand what I am saying? If, I, if one has great unbearable pain, the brain has its own capacity to protect itself against pain. The brain specialists are inquiring into this, are finding out, because we have talked to some of them, are finding out that the brain has the capacity to, or through some chemical reaction, to protect itself against not too much pain, but some pain. Don't accept my word for this. Uh, the speaker has found that out long ago, that the brain has the capacity to protect itself against danger, against pain, against certain amount of grief. Beyond that, 
the brain becomes unconscious. There is giving up. And the questioner says, what should I do? Right? How can the speaker decide this? Perhaps I can hold his or her hand for a while, but that's not going to solve the problem. Either one has great sense of not identifying with the pain, but it's impossible to have tremendous pain. And if one can bear, without operation, the extraordinary pain that one has, one must also be aware that it might injure the brain. You understand what I'm saying? Haven't you noticed this in yourself? That you can bear pain up to a point, which is the brain has the capacity to bring about some chemical responses which will safeguard it against pain. But if you have too much pain, of course, that's impossible. That question clear. The fourth extract is from Krishnamurti's fourth talk at Brockwood Park in 1969, titled Healing takes place when there is no me. Most of us have had pain of some kind or another, intense, superficial, or pain that cannot be cured. What effect has that brain, has that pain, on the psyche, the psychosomatic states? What pain, physical pain, effect has on the brain or on the mind? Can the mind meditate, disassociating itself from pain? You are following all this? Can the mind look at the physical pain, not identifying itself with that pain, and observe. If it can observe without identifying itself with that pain, there is a quite a different quality to that pain. I don't know if you have not observed it. This is fairly simple. <coughs> if one has a toothache, tummy ache, you can somewhat disassociate yourself and observe it. No, one hasn't got to rush off right off to the doctor or take some pill that will help it. You observe it. There is a disassociation, a detachment, you know, a feeling of looking at it as though you are outside of it. Surely this helps the pain, doesn't it? The more you get attached to the pain, the more intense so that may help you bring about this healing. The question is, can meditation help another who is in pain? Obviously. And also, you know, the question of healing is also important. Healing can only take place when there is no me, 
the me, the ego, the self-centred activity. Some people have a gift for it, others come upon it, because there is no me, the ego, function. The fifth extract is from the fourth talk in Madras, 1985, titled Our Bodies Are As Misused As Our Brains. One thing is absolutely certain, which is that we're all going to die. Whether you like it or not, that's an absolute irrevocable fact. You and the speaker are going to die one day, I hope. Not a few days, but many, many years later. <laughs> so we ought to talk over together as two friends, not agreeing or disagreeing, but look at it all, the living and the dying. What is living? What is it that we call living? Please, this is a discussion. This is a dialogue between you and the speaker. So, work it out. What do you call living? Is living this constant struggle, constant conflict, seeking power, status, position, and not be perhaps being able to get it, and living in constant battle with oneself. And The living is what we call anxiety, attachment, right? The living is going to the office, whether it is the highest ministers of this country or the lowest clerk, going to the office every day for sixty years or fifty years of your life, from nine to five, being insulted, pushed around, right? unless you are the top executives. That's what we call also life, the responsibility of earning a livelihood with money to support your wife and children and educate them, and the education is pretty rotten, as it is in this country and elsewhere too, that are merely emphasising, memorising. Right? And making them into machines. You are programming them to be mathematicians, to be engineers, to be scientists, right, and so on. They offer a means of livelihood. And so you spend eight hours of the day for the rest of your life, and then retire to die. This is a fact. Seeking God, seeking peace, seeking some kind of shelter, some kind of way of living that is not so utterly shallow, empty, 
And <coughs> this is what we call living. Is it a waste of life? I'm asking, we're asking each other this question. This way of living, with all the complications of that, always wanting more and more and more. And this is what we call living. Try to meditate and prepare for meditation, sitting in the right posture, breathing rightly, hoping to control your mind, your thoughts, playing with all that stuff. Right? And our bodies are being misused, as, as our mind, as our brains. Have you watched your own bodies? That is, our bodies have, are an extraordinary instrument. <coughs> most intricate, anatomically, how through long centuries of millennia upon millennia our bodies have been prepared through evolution and is the most astonishing machine. And how we neglect And each one of us knows this and we neglect it, we disregard it. We never take proper exercise, yoga. Ah, I must be careful of that word. You can get hooked up, hooked to the word yoga and all the practices involved in it, and spend days and years being concerned with that, hoping to achieve some kind of... But exercise is necessary for the body. The speaker does it every morning for an hour. Yoga and other forms of exercise. And we don't know, we are accustomed to one kind of food and we stick to that. There's no, you understand all this, I don't have to. So our body, which is really, if you have gone into it, is the most amazing instrument, like the brain. And through long usage, it, we- it wears itself out, and the organism dies. When we are ninety, fifty, through accident, through misuse, through old age. The body, the organism, may, long, may last hundred or hundred and ten years, but the organism comes to an end. That's what, what we call death. Then we ask ourselves, <coughs> what is it that lives if I die? Right? Aren't you all asking that question? Marvelous question. We are all asking that question. We know 
the body goes. And our life may have been wasted. Have you ever asked yourselves whether you are wasting your life? Please ask it now and find out for yourself whether you are wasting it. The sixth extract is from Krishnamurti's fourth talk in San Diego, 1970, titled The Body Has Its Own Intelligence. Silence of the mind is the beauty of itself, is the beauty in itself. To listen to the bird, to the voice of a human being, to the politician, to the priest, to all the noise of propaganda that goes on, to listen completely silently. And then you hear much more, you see much more. Now, that silence is not possible If your body, the organism, is not also completely still, you understand? Mm. If your body, the organ, with all its nervous responses, all the fidgeting, the ceaseless movement of fingers, the eyes, you know, you know, the restlessness of the body. That must be completely still. Have you ever tried sitting completely still without a single movement of the body, including the eyes? Do it sometime and you will see. You may do it for five minutes or two minutes, that's good enough. Don't say, how am I to keep it for ten minutes, for an hour? Don't. That's greed. To do it for two minutes is enough. And that two, in that two minutes, the whole of this thing is revealed, if you know how to look. So the body must be still, because then the flow of the blood to the head becomes more, right? If you sit crouched, hmm, sloppy, then it is more difficult for the blood to go to the head. You know all this. So either lie down or sit still, sit, do anything. You can meditate in the bus. When you are driving, that's the most. If you are driving, it's the most extraordinary thing, you know, that you can meditate while you're driving. Only be, all, be awfully careful. <laughs> no, no, I really mean this. Which means the body has its own intelligence, which the mind has spoiled, thought has destroyed. Thought seeks pleasure, 
Therefore, tasty foods, you follow? Overeating, indulging, sexually in all the ways, compelling the body to do certain things. If it is lazy, force it not to be lazy, or take a pill to keep awake. That way you are destroying the, the innate intelligence of the organism. And when you do that, the organism becomes insensitive. And so you need great sensitivity. Therefore one has to watch what one eats, all that. I won't go into all that business. It's up to you. Because if you overeat, you know what happens, you know, all the ugliness of all that. So you need a body that is highly sensitive, greatly intelligent. And therefore, love which doesn't become pleasure love then is enjoyment. It is joy. Pleasure has always a motive. Joy has none. It is timeless. You can't say, I am joyous. The moment you have said it, it's gone. Or if you seek the cause of that joy, you want it repeated, and no, therefore no longer joy. So that these three things are essential. They the intelligence of the body, the capacity, the fullness of love without the distortions of pleasure, which doesn't mean that they are not pleasure, but which doesn't distort the mind. Look. You know, most of us have pain, physical pain, in some form or another. And that pain generally distorts the mind, doesn't it? I wish I hadn't it, I wish I were better, you know, spends days thinking about it. So, when the body has pain, to watch it, to observe it. And not let it interfere with the mind. You are following all this? Do it, sirs. So, the body, the breath, the mind, including the brain, and the heart, which is supposed to be love, all that must be in total harmony. Now, what is the point of all this? What is the point of this kind of life, this kind of harmony? What good is it in this world when everybody is suffering and one or two people have this ecstatic life? What's the point? I wonder who is asking this question. 
If you are asking this question, what's the point of it? It has none whatsoever. But if you have this extraordinary thing going in your life, then it is it is everything. Then you become the teacher, the disciple, the neighbour, the beauty of the cloud. You are you are the you are all that. And that is love. The final extract in this episode is from the seventh talk in Sanin, 1971, titled Harmony Between the Body, Mind and Heart. So, I have found, mind has found, that where there is silence, not put together by thought and discipline, practice and all that terrible horror, but seeing, seeing that thought cannot possibly go beyond itself, because thought is the result of the past, and where the past is functioning it must create division, and therefore conflict, sorrow and all the rest of it. Seeing that, and remaining completely still with that. You know, it's like being completely still with sorrow. You know, somebody whom you love or whom, for whom you care, whom you have looked after, cherished, loved, concerned with, when that person dies there is the shock of loneliness, despair, sense of isolation, everything falls round you, in that sorrow to remain with it, not seeking explanation, the cause, why should he go and why not I? to remain completely still with it. The, to remain with it completely still is intelligence. And that intelligence then can operate in thought, using knowledge. And that knowledge and thought, thought will not create division. I've got to get in So the question arises from that, how is the mind, your mind, which is so endlessly chattering, listen to this, please listen to it, which is so endlessly bourgeois, caught in a trap, struggling, seeking, going after the masters and, you know, gurus and disciplining. How is that mind to be completely still? Now, You know, harmony is stillness. Harmony. Not discord. Harmony between the body, the heart and the mind. Complete harmony. That means the body your body must not be imposed upon by the mind, disciplined by the mind, 
disciplined by the mind when it likes certain kind of food, tobacco, drugs, you follow? The excitement of all that, being controlled by the mind. Then it is an imposition, whereas the body, and it is sensitive, alive, has its own intelligence, not spoiled. One must have such a body, terribly alive, sensitive, active, not drugged. And also one must have a heart, you understand, not excitement, not sentiment, sentiment, not emotion, not enthusiasm, but that sense of fullness, you know, depth, quality, vigour, that can only, when there is love, and a mind that has immense peace. Then there is harmony. Now how is the mind, listen to this, to come upon this? I am sure you are all asking this, perhaps not sitting there, but when you go home, when you walk, when you are looking at the… how can one have this sense of complete unity, integrity, without any sense of distortion, division, fragmentation, the body, the heart and the mind? How do you think you can have it? Now, you see the fact of this, don't you? Huh? You see the truth of it, that you must have a complete harmony in yourself, mind, the heart, the body. It's like having clear window, unspotted without any scratch, unsullied, then as you can look out through a window, you can see everything without any distortion. Now how can you have it? Now who sees the fa this truth? You are following? Who sees the truth that there must be this harmony, complete harmony? As we said, when there is harmony, there is silence. When one of the three becomes distorted, there is trouble, there is noise. But when the mind, the heart and the organ are complete, in harmony there is silence. Now, who sees this fact? You understand my question? Do you see it as an idea, as a theory, as something you should have? If you do, then it is all the function of thought. Then you will say, tell me what the system, what kind of system I must have to get this. I will practice, I will deny, I will discipline, I will cook myself brown. All that is the activity of thought. But when you see the truth of this, the truth, not what should be, when you see that is the fact, it is so, then the, it is intelligence that sees it. 
Therefore, it is intelligence that will function to, and therefore bring, bring about this state. You get it? Not so. I can't do any more. So for ease of time, intelligence is not of time. So intelligence is immeasurable. Not the scientific intelligence, not the intelligence of a technician, not the intelligence of a housewife, not the intelligence of a man who knows a tremendous lot. That's all within the field of thought and knowledge. <coughs> and it is only when the mind is completely still, and it can be still, you don't have to practice, control, it can be completely still. And when it is, there is harmony, there is vast peace and silence, and it is only then the immeasurable ace. <coughs>